Welcome to the Abundant Life Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by our guest speaker. For more information about Abundant Life Church, please visit www.abundantlifechurch.org. I want to share a bit of the word with you this morning, a message that God has given me. I want to tell you that God knows what he's doing. This stuff isn't random. We don't just sort of pick the sermon of the week from our favorite library. We seek God. We look for his will. And many of you know what's been going on around here. You know what's happening. You know what God's doing in this church and so many others in the area. So Sister Angela steps up this morning and starts preaching my message, so to speak. For those of you who are missing pre-service prayer, my goodness, I plead with you. I plead with you. Try to be here. It is an amazing time and God is moving. And so... God leaned on her this morning, gave her something to share with the music group and with those of us at pre-service prayer. It goes right along with this message. Her song list, her service this morning, same thing. 2 Samuel chapter 6, starting at verse 2, says this. And David arose and went with all the people that were with him from Baal of Judah to bring up from thence the ark of God whose name is called by the name of the Lord of hosts that dwelleth between the cherubims. Many of you probably don't know that those cherubs represent the two angels that stood at the gate at the Garden of Eden and represented God's almighty presence. And verse 3 says, And they set the ark of God upon a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab that was in Gibeah. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drave the new cart and they brought it out of the house of Abinadab which was at Gibeah, accompanying the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark, and David and all the house of Israel played before the Lord on all the manner of instruments made of fir wood, even on harps and on psalteries and on timbrels and on cornets and on cymbals. We had a little bit of that worship here this morning, didn't we? And when they came to Nashon's threshing floor, Yuza put forth his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen shook it. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God smote him there for his error. And there he died by the ark of God. And David was displeased because the Lord had made a breach upon Uzzah. And he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah to this day. You can be seated this morning. Appreciate Brother Meyer inviting our guests to our hospitality suite, it's, there's two signs, two big signs back there. Senior pastor, our, our family care pastor, Brother Steve, and I would be glad to meet any guests. And my family has a guest in the house this morning, so I'm embarrassed him a little bit. Uh, our good friend Sean is here this morning. And uh, the only reason I'm embarrassing him, because I've been telling him forever that he's like, he's like my son. He's a son to me. And, uh, and just so he knows, now I've said it in front of 180 people. So you're my son, Sean. Before I get started, and, and, and what I want to talk to you about this morning is, I've come to break your cart. And I want, to, I want you to understand that I, the I is not me. But the message is, I've come to break your cart. And in, in a couple of conversations I've had over the last few days, Brother Mike Kiley and, and, and Brother Dennis Matucci and a couple of other folks, and I'm, I'm seeing it on Facebook and social media and all these different things that are happening, 
people are, there's a lot of concern and there's fear and there's frustration and there's anxiety about what's happening in the world around us. And you've heard it a couple of times from the pulpit out here. We are grieved, and rightfully so. I'm not criticizing anybody, but we are grieved about what's happening with this stuff with abortion going on right now. And, and, and if this offends you, I don't apologize. It's an abomination. It, it's a genocide that's happening right before our eyes. We're just simply bringing Molech back. I mean, essentially, that's, this is Philistine uh, worship that's going on here. We just sacrifice babies for whatever God that we decide to put up there. And, and so we're grieved by that. And so one of the conversations was, what do we do about this? It's terrible. It's horrible. We're, the church is standing by and we're just allowing this to happen. Well, first of all, that's not true. Okay. But the bigger concern for me is this is that my brothers and sisters, my, my friends, my, my family, my church family, is getting grieved and weighed down and vexed by these things to a point of, of distraction, perhaps, sadness. We should be grieved. We should be praying about these things all the time. We should represent in our voting and everything that we can do civically. But I'm here to tell you this morning, this is not what the faith of God is about in terms of its entirety and its identity. And what I mean by that is this. For every one of those precious little babies, those precious little angels that are made, God's got them. It's a terrible thing. It's a horrific thing. But God's got them. But I've said it before, and I'm going to say it again and again and again. Where sin abounds, grace does that much more abound. Every single one of those little babies that we lose to this horrific society that we live in. I'm telling you, your focus, your focus shouldn't necessarily be on that. Once they're, you, I'm sorry, I wish I could change this story, but you, you can't go, I challenge any one of you to drive to New York State, walk into the governor's mansion and say, I want to change that law. You're not going to do it. It's not going to happen. You can protest, get yourself sent to jail. I know people personally that spent half their life getting put in jail, protesting abortion clinics. Did a good job. You see what I'm saying? But here's the focus. Here's where we are. Here's where the church of God is. Because for every one of those precious little babies, those precious little souls that are taken and destroyed for no reason, for no reason except for convenience and evil, for every single one of them, we're going to see a soul reborn right here. We're going to take care of people that are here. God is going to fill people with the Spirit. We're going to see new birth and new birth and new birth. That's the focus of the church today. People are worried about this Ocasio-Cortez lady. Socialism is coming into the United States. I want to tell you right now, God is not a Republican. He's not a Democrat. He's not a socialist. He's not a communist. I hear people say it out there in media. You know, Jesus was a socialist. Yeah, because he was, he was responsible for the genocide of 50 million people at one point. But I'm trying to tell you, don't let that fear creep in. This is not what you're about. This is not what we're called to do. This is not what the church is for. You're worried about socialism? Report. Go and vote the way you want to vote. But every person that gets sucked into that mentality and gets doctrinated with that, socialism always comes with godliness, godlessness. In every situation in society where socialism has been attempted, it's failed. Why? Because there's no God in it whatsoever. And it may not fail here. Maybe they'll take over. Maybe Ocasio-Cortez or whoever those people are are going to get a hold of that thing. So what? 
That's not my job. My job is to get a hold of the person that I can get a hold of right now and teach them the principles of God. Keep them insulated from that garbage that's out there. That doctrination that says take God first out. Then you can rely on the government. That's your God. I'm sorry if this seems political to you, but it, believe me, it ties into this story. I'm not, a, I'm not trying to have a rally here. I'm not trying to have a political rally, but it just struck me that we're getting so invested in these things that ultimately, you know that Ocasio-Cortez was elected by 16,000 people? That's it. She was a bartender. She's a puppet. She was brought up by a group of people, actually young Muslims, if you know who the young Turks are. She was basically, uh, she was in a cattle call, uh, kind of like the actresses and stuff go do. They do their auditions and stuff like that. That's it. She looked apart, sounded apart. She went to Boston College, got a great education, got all fired up. You ever notice when she goes off, she goes off uh, record or she goes off her, her standard stuff, her, her uh, speech that they give her, she's, it's terrible. And I feel bad for her. I, but I don't hate her. And I hear there's hatred coming out. That's not the place of the church. That's not what we're here for. If I had a chance to talk to you, you think I'd try to talk her mind out of socialism? No. I try to expose her to the word of God. Now, I know that sounds silly, but that's my point. My point is, is can, can, can any of you today or tomorrow or this week directly affect some lady that's a congressperson out of some district in, in, in New York? No. But see, that's why he's come to break our carts. And I want to talk a little bit further about that this morning. I'm going to give you a quick history. Many of you know this already, so I'm going to go through it rather quickly. When Moses came down out of Sinai, we know that he had the tablets, he had the law, that God had given him the Ten Commandments, but we also know that he was given much more than just that. He was given very, very, very detailed instructions of the, of the entire law, the Mosaic law, from what they ate and how they dressed and where they went and where they worshipped, to the very letter. Everything was defined for them in the law, including the structure of the tabernacle, the church that they were to, to, to be worshipping in, this moving, mobile tabernacle that they were in. Everything was defined to the exact detail, including the most important part of all of their lives, the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was designed to carry the law. It was designed to carry a few other things that had the rod eventually in it that budded, that Moses, if you remember that story. But more so than any of that, it was the presence of God on this planet for the people of Israel. It was holier than anything in the universe because his presence dwelt there between the cherubim on the mercy seat. And you've heard me before talk about the, the pillars, the pillar of cloud during the day and the pillar of fire at night was the direction that Israel went. And I said, I've said many times, and many of you agreed with me, the pillars are moving down the road. We've got a new place. This church is going new places. But see, what happened is, is that they defined all of that stuff and they built it and they did everything God told them to do. And they set up the tabernacle. Now, many of you understand and know that the tabernacle is a model, a, model, a type and shadow of the redemptive power of Jesus Christ. It was just a type of shadow of what was to come in grace. And so, the Israelites built this thing. Every dimension, every specific... And you can go back into Exodus 25 and you can see all the details and, and there's obviously other places, but it was, it was designed exactly as God had said because it was so critical. It represents his word, his will, his identity. It's who he is. 
The Benjamites didn't get to make their own version of the tabernacle, and the Levites didn't get to make their own version of the tabernacle, and so on and so on. There was one tabernacle, one outer court, one inner court, one holy of holies, one ark of the covenant. And it was critical that everything was done exactly as God had said, because he has one will, one way, and it's holier than anything in existence. And so they did it. And they built the ark. And eventually the tablets went in. Now during the course of history, during the course of time, the ark became sometimes a, an instrument of battle, being God's presence. And sometimes they would carry it into battle and, and the Philistines would be slain or whoever it was that they were facing. And, and, and very, very specific rules. And they were told, you can't touch it. You can't defile this holy thing. Don't ever touch it. And so in, in Exodus chapter 25, for example, it describes that the ark was built with golden rings on either side and staves. And these staves are long poles and they would put the poles through the rings and they picked the thing up and they could carry it like this and they put it on their shoulders and carry it, but they were not to touch it. Folks, can I say that we can't ever touch the holy thing of God? We can't change it. We can't modify it because once somebody starts touching it, do you ever see that? Just if you're a car person, if you're a if you're a home remodeler, if you, we just can't stop touching and changing stuff. We just have to have our identity on it. That's what that whole thing is. If you're a car rebuilder person, if you're a person who likes to do that, fix cars and do all that, you know, Brother Gagliano is real into that. If he's here today. It's because we're trying to put our identity on it. Do you understand? We're trying to put our will into it. I want that car to look exactly like I do. I want that thing to look the like way I want it to. If you're a home remodeler, if you, whatever your hobby is, it's, you're trying to imprint your identity on it. And so we were not allowed to touch. No one was ever allowed to touch the Ark of the Covenant because it was going to be the first step to us trying to put our identity on it. We were going to change it. God knows how we operate. That's just what we do. I guarantee you, if he said, just pick the box up and carry it over and we'll find, there's going to be somebody in that group who is going to go, well, you know, it'd be cool if this looked like a lion instead of... You know what was going to happen. And so they were given very explicit instructions not to modify or touch at all the Ark of the Covenant. And so they built the tabernacle, and as you know how the story goes, they would pick it as God would move, they would pick it up. Well, obviously the most important thing to pick up once they wrapped up the whole thing, all the skins and all the poles and all the pieces of furniture and all that stuff, the most important piece to move on down the road, of course, is the Ark of the Covenant. Now the Ark exists today. Those of you who saw Indiana Jones, you know, they sort of glorified that. I, did, I was like nine years old or something. When that came. I, I didn't know what the Ark of the Covenant was, now I do. But... The ark exists, and the reason that it's hidden and in a place that we can't find it and that, that it's, it's completely, they've been looking forever. They will find it, and it's a very powerful part of Revelation that once they find the ark of the covenant, there's some stuff in there that they need to work with some other stuff in the temple that they're going to build in Jerusalem and watch out because that's when it's all going to start coming down. So God is hiding it, God has hidden it, and is not allowing man to find it because it's his time that will determine when that starts to happen. That's another message. Come back later. So if you look at uh, the structure 
of the tabernacle. And you look at how they operated. And, and again, we've talked about this before, and we'll preach about it again. There's different parts of the tabernacle. You can preach every little tiny part of the tabernacle. I could, tr- I could have a career just preaching the tabernacle, literally. It's that detail, and it's phenomenal, the message that's there. It's a type and shadow of the redemptive power of Jesus Christ. If you ever want to really know, if you struggle sometimes sharing the plan of salvation with someone, if you struggle really, truly understanding this broad picture of salvation from beginning to end, know the tabernacle, learn it, and you can teach it and share it, and you can do it with confidence and say, I know this is what God planned. I understand what the plan of salvation is because it's echoed and transmitted and shadowed again and again and again throughout Scripture and the tabernacle is the best example. It's about our relationship with God and our salvation. So you don't have to go there. I'll skim through these because there's a lot of scripture in studying this. The Old Testament is very verbose. You ever notice that a lot of Old Testament scripture, they say they're going to do something and then 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 the word says they did that and then the second part is they say how they did it. So God said to go do this and then they did this and then they did it. And so... Okay, so 1 Samuel chapter 4 describes a situation where Israel had lost a battle against the Philistines. These are our bad guys. You want to know who the Philistines are? It's the people killing babies. The spirit of the Philistines. If you want to understand what that is, that's the spirit of the Philistines right there. They were baby murderers. And Israel fights the Philistines today, believe it or not. They still exist. Philistines are still with us. And Israel fights them now. As a matter of fact, a couple of days ago, they launched a few more rockets into Tel Aviv. Keep picking at the bear. Okay. Anyway, in 1 Samuel 4, Israel loses a battle against the Philistines. And uh, they, so they go down and they grab the ark out of Shiloh. Now, if you guys understand the story of Eli, the, the high priest, he wasn't doing a real good job with his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And, and Hophni and Phinehas were, uh, were, were, were taking care of the ark in a place called Shiloh. And, and they were watching. And so the Israelites decide, well, hey, we lost this battle against the Philistines. That stunk. And so they ran down to Shiloh and said, well, we're going to grab the ark and we're going to go back and pick a fight with the Philistines. Okay. Now, they go back to the, to the battle of the Philistines, and they lose again. And this time, the Philistines take the ark, okay? And they kill Hophni and Phinehas. Now, this is really terrible, obviously, because this treasured, holiest thing in, on planet Earth and all the universe has now been taken over by this, these evil scumbags, the Philistines. This is a bad deal. This is where Israel laments, and they're fearful, etc. Now, in 1 Samuel 5, the Philistines, you know the story, they take their, they take, this is very common in this day, by the way, when, when, these, when these factions would battle back and forth, they would take their prize and they'd go stick it with their God. And so what the Philistines did, they have this God called Dagon, they kind of ripped him off, it's a long story, but God, Dagon's a statue in a cave, and so they take the Ark of the Covenant, and they take the Ark, and they stick it right next to Dagon. And that was sort of like the way to say, ha, 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 we've, we've got your God, we, we win, right? Except, overnight, the power and presence of God knocks Dagon down, right? So they come in in the morning. The Philistine uh, uh, priests come in. They find Dagon laying on the ground. They, oh, that stinks. They pick him back up and put it back up. And then the next night, God knocks it down. But this time, he breaks Dagon into parts. Okay, put him back up now. You don't have the glue enough to do that. Okay, so the Philistines are like, wow, this is okay. This is real now. They're starting to get the idea that this is really the presence of God, Okay. So now what happens is after Dagon falls, this is where it gets gross. If you're squeamish, you may want to plug your ears. It's scripture though, and I told you, (laughs) if it's between the black covers, I'm going to preach it, okay? Even the gross parts. Okay, so in 1 Samuel chapter 5, then Dagon's down. The Philistines are kind of mad. They don't know what to do. And so God says, okay, you don't get the picture with me knocking Dagon over. I'm going to give you hemorrhoids. 
and he attacks the entire Philistine land with hemorrhoids and mice. The Bible calls them enrods. If you look it up, it's hemorrhoids, okay? And it says these horrible, awful enrods in their secret places. That's what the word says. It says that. It's really gross. It gets more gross in a second, though. Hang on. Okay, so now they got this hemorrhoid problem, and they're going, okay, this is really bad, because I would much rather not have hemorrhoids than this beautiful box of gold that's knocking our statues down. Makes sense, right? They're starting to get the picture. So they, okay, we're sending the ark back. We're getting it out of here. It's a plague. So in 1 Samuel 6, now the ark had been with the Philistines for seven months. How many know the number of God? Seven, exactly. So the ark had been with the Philistines for seven months, and so here's what they decide to do. (laughs) They decide that they're going to make little gold mice and little golden hemorrhoids. Not kidding. It says it. It's right in the Word. Looking for Samuel 6. Take those images. So they had to essentially look. It says take the images of these things and fashion gold to give as an offering, which means somebody had to be looking. That's nasty. Okay, really gross. But they did, and they figured out what they looked like, and they made gold things out of them, okay, or or fashioned gold things to look like it, and so they decided they're going to do this. Now, if you turn to 1 Samuel chapter 6, I will get, I'll read you this point, because this is important. First Samuel chapter 6, starting at verse 2. Sorry, I missed my place here. It says, And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners, saying, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us wherewith we shall send it to his place. And they said, Ye send away the ark of God of Israel. Send it not empty, but in any wise return him a trespass offering. They shall, then, shall, excuse me, then ye shall be healed, and it shall be known to you why his hand is not removed from you. Then they said, and then said they, what shall be the trespass offering and what shall return to him? And they answered, five golden enrods and five golden, five golden mice. Okay? And so there it is. Now you go down to verse 7, it says this. Now this is the key. Listen to this verse now. It says, now therefore, make a new cart and take two milch kine. Two milch kine are cows that are already milking. They have calves. This is key. Take two milch kine on which there hath come no yoke, and tie the kind to the cart, and bring their calves home from them. And take the ark of the Lord, and lay it upon the cart, and put the jewels of gold, which he return him, return him for a trespass offering, in a coffer by the side thereof, and send it away that it may go. So here's their plan. They're going to take these milch kind. Now see the nature here that should happen. If this isn't God, if this just happened, is what they say going forward. If it, did, it just was just chance that the whole stinking nation got hemorrhoids, um, we'll find out now because the milch kind would naturally, as the calves begin to bay, wanting milk, the cows would hear it and they would travel back to their calves to feed them, right? And so they get the two milch kind, they strap them on there, and they take the calves away and they send them on their way with the Ark of the Covenant on a new cart and their gross gift that they're offering Israel. It never really does say what happens when Israel looks... Well, it says what happens when they look in it, but when they actually finally get the offering where it's supposed to go, they never really say, you know, like, what, what was that like? Open up a box of golden hemorrhoids? <laughs> Thanks, Phil. Maybe that's why they hate each other so much still to this day. <laughs> I have no idea. What kind of gift is that? 
But see, here's the idea. The heathens did not know God's law. Because I said to you early, how the ark was handled was very, very specific. You see, Jerusalem is surrounded by hills. And and so they were constantly transporting the ark around because that's what God had directed them to do. It's what they did in the wilderness, and it's what they were doing in Jerusalem. They would take it into battle and fight their enemies. But the ark was supposed to be carried. You and I were supposed to have the burden of picking the ark up. Now listen, it was just the Levites who ever moved or touched or were around the ark. No other Israelite, anybody, ever had anything to do with the Ark of the Covenant. They were off in the distance, they were in the battles, but it was the Levites. Who are the Levites? The priests. Who are you? The royal priesthood, right? First Peter, the chosen generation, a peculiar people, a royal priesthood. You are the priests, and so it was defined for you and I to carry the burden of carrying the Ark wherever it went. Because you had to go up hills and over rocks, and believe it or not, they didn't have bulldozers then. They didn't asphalt their roads. They didn't, there weren't really easy paths for that thing to go. But see, the Israelites are heathen, excuse me, the Philistines are heathens. They worship false gods. They didn't know any difference, and so they said, well, it'd be easier to strap this thing to a couple of cows, put it in a cart, and send it on its way. Not to mention the fact that they didn't want to be anywhere near it because they didn't want any other sick diseases, Right? He's looking at me like, what is he talking about? <laughs> it gets better, I promise. So they put the gold with the ark. They send all that stuff, and they send it to a place called Beth Shemesh. That's his Israel territory. Okay, And so this guy named Joshua the Beth Meshashite, if you want to say it that way, sees this thing coming, the people see the ark coming back, and of course they rejoice, and every time that would happen and the ark would come, they would rejoice. And so they get the ark back, and they're super excited about it, and uh, they go over to, to, uh, to take, make sure it gets taken into custody, and all the lords of the Philistines, the five lords of the Philistines, see that it's been taken. They realize the milch kind did not follow nature, and they said, okay, there's a big bad God up there that made this happen. This is the real deal. And they skipped town. They were gone. They were out, Okay. And so now the Beshemites have this, and it's really great. Now, this is in 1 Samuel 6 still, and they start worshiping and, and doing what they're supposed to do, just like we've heard from David. David danced before, and you'll hear that in just a moment. But it's the presence of God. Can we, can, we do that, right? That was today. We saw that earlier. We were worshiping and dancing and praising in the presence of God. It's all over Scripture, by the way. If that's not your tradition or, or your understanding, I'll, I'll do a, we'll do a study on that too. But what I'm saying is, is that the people understood that the power of God was there and they worshipped and they, and they danced and sang and played music and all of that stuff. But here's the problem. Once again, just like I said a moment ago, they couldn't keep their hands off of it. And so they had to look into it and they opened up the ark and looked in it and God kills 50,000 Beth Shemites. 50,000, it actually says 50,000, three score and seven. I think that's 50,000, three score and ten. 50,000 and 70. Is that right? And he kills them all for looking in the, in the, into the ark. Israelites now, not Philistines, 50,000 of his own people. This is how incredibly important and holy that this is. God means business when he says, Don't touch my holy thing. Tell me that those little babies 
prior to birth aren't among the holiest things on this planet. Their time is coming. So they decide to get rid of the ark and they send it to a place called Kirjath-Jerim. Kirjath-Jerim is in Israeli territory and it sits down in there and it ends up staying there, I believe, for something like 20 years, a very long period. Sorry, I'm going to grab this. So they push the ark out of the way and get it out, and, and, and they don't want anything to do with it because now they've, they've defiled it and they've made God angry, and, and 50,000 of them are dead. And so this went on and on and on through the course of this process, and I read to you 2 Samuel chapter 6, Again, I'll go through it again. They, were, they had decided to put the ark on a cart. They actually took the methodology from the heathens. They took two oxen, and you, you heard it right there in the scripture. Abinadab, who was a, was a priest, and his sons, they set the ark upon a new cart, verse 3, and brought it out of the house of Abinadab. And he drove the cart. And so what's happening now is, is they're taking the, cart, the, the ark out of Kirjath-Jerim and they're taking it back to Jerusalem. See, that's where it really belongs. The ark belongs in the temple, in the tabernacle. It belongs where the presence of God is supposed to be, the center of his universe. And so David feels this compulsion to do this. And so they go and they get the ark he tells them to go and get the ark, and the priests put it up on this cart. A couple of oxen. Now, in Scripture, it's important to understand that oxen represents physical strength. Anywhere you see that, most times it's physical strength. And so, in other words, it's a type and shadow to say that they decided to rely on physical strength instead of God's strength. They wanted to make it easier on themselves. So they put the holiest thing in the world, in the universe, on this ark, with two oxen, and they send it on its way. Now, Yuza, who's one of the sons of, of Abinadab, the high priest, is following along. The other son's driving the cart. And so, as they're going along, of course, as I said, this is rocky terrain, it's going uphill and all this stuff. Well, at some point, the oxen stumble. Hear me now. At some point, the personal physical strength stumbles. You will be shaken. Your convictions will be tried. You will stumble if you rely exclusively on your own personal strength. I'll get back to that. So they're rolling along, the oxen shakes, and what happens is the Ark of the Covenant begins to topple off of the cart, or at least it looks like it's beginning to topple. And Yuza is standing there. Now, again, this is a priest. He's a Levite priest. He knows the law. He understands what God has said. But in his grand wisdom, decides to reach out and catch the Ark of the Covenant before it falls. God kills him. Now you might say, well, that's not fair. David was angry. David was, it says he was so upset because God brought this breach upon Yuza. Now I want to I point something out. Yuza was a young man. Do not assume that Yuza's end or any of the Israelites that were killed in Beth Shemesh were going to hell. 
But what we have is we have a tragedy of a young man who knew better and touched God's holy thing and shortened what could have been a powerful life ministering for God and his kingdom. So don't assume that he went to hell. But Yuzah was gone, and David was very upset. Why would he do this? Because David was thinking in the flesh as well. David was thinking, oh, the ark's going to fall. i got to save it. But what David wasn't recognizing is that the ark should not have been on a cart in the first place. The Levite priests should have hoisted that thing on their shoulders and should have stood there. And regardless of the distance they had to go or the rocks that they had to cover or the challenges that they had to face or whatever problems came their way, if their bills got too big or if their medical condition was a challenge, it doesn't matter. They should have never put that thing on a cart in the first place. They should have got it up on their shoulders and said, no matter what we're going to do, we're going to walk with the burden of the Ark of the Covenant on our shoulders every step of the way. You may remember the rest of the story. When David really recognized what had happened, took the ark off, the cart, and here's what they did. They had about 17 kilometers to go, is what what history says, roughly between uh, Kirjath-Jerim and Jerusalem. According to um, TripAdvisor, it's like a four and a half hour drive. For those of you who may want to know that. But here's what they did. David insisted. He took off his priestly robes. Remember that story? I've I've mentioned it here before. Cast all of that. Actually, not his priestly robes. His kingly robes. Cast all that off. And danced and worshipped before the Lord when the ark appeared. And here's what they did. And they put the ark down and they sacrificed animals and they worshipped and they praised God and they did all the things that they were supposed to do and then they picked the ark up and six more paces. It probably took them 112 years to get to Jerusalem, something like that. (laughs) Now imagine if they had just picked the ark up and done exactly what God had said and entreated the holiest thing in the world the way they were supposed to, and not define for themselves what's a stronger thing, not relied on the strength of the oxen, not relied on doctrines of the heathens who said, we'll build a new cart and we'll send it back to Jerusalem and copy what the Philistines did in order to get the ark back to where it was supposed to go. Now let me take you forward just a a little bit because this didn't stop. Jesus fought this Philistine attitude, this attitude every step of the way. And I'm talking about the Pharisees and the Sadducees. See, they had the Ark. They were in Jerusalem. They had the Ark of the Covenant. They had the temple. But these characters, the Pharisees, this leadership, had completely lost touch with God. And they had defined all of this stuff for themselves. Angela, they were sitting in the high places. They had their Asherah poles. She defined that for us in, in, our, in our morning prayer this morning. The Bible talks about taking down those high things. We sang about it today. 
Every stronghold must come down. Every high place of what those things are are the places that you and I put above God. Hezekiah, the greatest king, in my opinion, the greatest king in Israel, the reformer, the king that came in and said, this is wrong, this has to stop. Hezekiah reformed everything. He tore down Asherah poles. He tore down the high places because he said it grieved him that Israel was worshiping things above God. It didn't say they weren't worshiping God too. It didn't say that there weren't some equality there, but it said that they had high places above God. They had Asherah poles in the temple of God. These were things that they set above him, things in their life that they decided were more important than God Almighty, and Hezekiah came in and ripped them all down. He said this is wrong, and it pleased God that he did it. That's why we sing about that. Every stronghold must come down, all those high places. That's what it's talking about. And so Jesus is ministering, and the Pharisees, of course, you know the story, just continuously badgering them. Evil men, he referred to them as as white sepulchers full of dead men's bones. Many times he faced off with them and told them what hypocrites they were. As a matter of fact, if you want to have some fun, look at Matthew chapter 23. About 68 times, and I'm exaggerating, of course. It says, oh, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Again and again and again, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. And right after he says hypocrites, he points out where they've modified and they've perverted the word of God and they've used their power and their abilities to to oppress the people and gain riches and sit in the high places. I had this conversation with somebody the other day. They said, there's always this assumption that the the upper room in the tabernacle is some, some high room, you have to go upstairs. I don't believe that's the case. It might be. And someone can prove me wrong, but I believe the high places are the ones that are closer to the buffet table. You, did, you ever, did you ever go to a wedding and see how they got all that stuff laid out and you got the head table and then they bring the food and, and, every, and you find out that you're farthest away from the buffet table and you're like, oh, I didn't eat earlier because we were at the wedding and then they had the pictures, and, right? But that's... But that's what they're talking about in my view. They're talking about the high places. The places are closer to the banquet, closer to the fancier people, the richer people. And the upper room, I believe, was just something that was closer to the presence of God. I don't think that 3,000 people could stand inside some tiny room on top of the temple of God and watch as the Holy Ghost came in and firing flames as they worshiped and they praised and they spoke in the languages these people understood. I believe what it said was they were just a little bit further in. You got the outer court and you have the inner court and you have the Holy of Holies. And I believe that they were in a high place, the place that was right next to the presence of God. That's the high place that we should be focusing on. That's the place that we should dwell And so Jesus continuously fronted them, uh, Matthew chapter 5 and 20. Listen to how how poignant this is. If you want to turn there, you can. Matthew chapter 5 and 20. It says, For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said that. Folks, we got to, you, I, I hope I'm making the connection here. We have to make sure that if at the very least we have to exceed what the scribes and the Pharisees and the hypocrites are doing in our walk with God. There's a lot of religious stuff out there. There's a lot of activity, all this kind of stuff and thoughts and ideas and all this kind of stuff, but we know what the Word of God says. We know what we're supposed to do. We understand the calling of God, the adherence to structure and authority. 
Jesus said in Matthew 5 and 17, I didn't come to destroy the law, I came to fulfill it. This is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mountain. He goes on to talk about how, yes, there's adultery, but if you just look at a woman with an imagination in your heart to, to lie with her or to lust after her, you've committed adultery already. You see, he didn't destroy the law. What he basically said is, I'm bringing holiness. I'm bringing proper behavior. I'm bringing the way I want you to be because I want you to be the Ark of the Covenant for this age. You understand? You are to be as holy as the Ark of the Covenant was. Why? Why is that? Because in each one of you filled with the Holy Ghost, you carry the most holy and precious thing in existence, the spirit and presence of God. You are the Ark of the Covenant. He didn't come to break the law or end it. He fulfilled it. He embodied it. He brought it to fruition, and so much, so much out there today is everybody's trying to fast-track church. Let's, I just read an article the other day that said that if you're not doing something to keep people at home sometimes and just absorbing your material on social media, you're going to miss the boat. And you might be afraid that if you just do it all via TV cast and social media that people won't come to your church. Don't do that, though, because what we're finding is people actually do come back. Sure, sure they do. That's a word from the enemy right there we got a fast-track church. Make it easy on people. Put a card underneath it. That's what the world is saying right now, right? Let's stick a card underneath our church here. Because the church is the Ark of the Covenant as well, right? The presence of God was here this morning. It's here right now. It's the holiest place there is when God's presence is there. And the world is trying to tell us to stick a card underneath it. Put a couple oxen. Put a, put a Facebook and a, and a YouTube on the front carry it off into the world, right? That's going to fight our battles for us. I don't think so. See, that cart was a doctrine of the heathens. It was the way they did it. They wanted it easy. We're not being called to easy. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 8. I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 14. It's chapter 5. I'm going to learn how to read sometime in this next couple weeks. Matthew 5 and 14 says, you are the light of the world, a city that is set on a hill that cannot be hid. What a great phrase. We're a city on a hill. Ronald Reagan used that terminology. He said the United States is a beacon. Are you worried about socialism creeping in on our country? Are you worried about politics and all those different things? I'm not. Because I serve a God that knew all of this stuff was coming down long ago. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick and giveth light unto all that are in the the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill, is what he said. Hebrews 8 and 5 says this, Who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed thee in the mount. What he was talking about is, we have a model for this. We have a way that we're supposed to do this. You've got to see that you get back to it. It's the pattern that was given to us in the mount. It's the tabernacle structure. It's the law structure. It's everything we've been given all the way through. 
Paul understood it. He knew the law. He knew the, he knew the history. Acts chapter 1, verses 8 says, But ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And here's the key right here. If you don't take anything else away from this, here's the key. And ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. The world wants to put faith on a cart, but it's not just that. They want us to put it on a cart too. But folks, I'm going to get just a little bit poignant right now. And I'm not going to... Thank you, Beth. And I'm not going to regret what I have to say. Because I believe that this is what God is calling for us to do. It's about all of this. I said earlier... These things don't happen accidentally. We're not called to these things accidentally. He's defining and directing, and we're listening as best we possibly can. And I'm doing everything I can to hear every word that he's given me for you and for me and for my family. But the world is asking us to put our ark on a cart. And some of us are making decisions that are doing just that. See, it's much easier to put our God on the cart than it is to witness and share it to a friend. It said it right there. We have one job. You are to be a light in this world. You're to be a witness to Judea and Samaria in all the uttermost parts of the earth. Well, Brother Cordell, I... I just really enjoy teaching my Sunday school class, and that's all I really want to do. Well, I'm uncomfortable talking to people. I don't personally believe that, that anyone's going to listen to me. Onto the cart. Onto the cart. Every person in this room, if you have an experience and a relationship with God, has a testimony. What is, what is the full name of the ark often referred to, Brother Pastor Rob? What's the other name? It's in Scripture. I'm testing you. I know I caught you off guard. The ark of the testimony. You're the ark of the testimony. I heard Friday night we were at, Kyle and I were at, Kyle and Sean and I actually were, and our wives were at an event on Friday night, and I heard a story about a young man who uh, sells insurance and provides insurance and encountered a family member or a, a person that they had contacted, had been meaning to do it for some time and was trying to contact this person and finally got a hold of him, got, finally got the appointment, sat down, went in and talked to his, his family. And he said that they sat at the table with this family and said, oh, by the way, my wife has been diagnosed with breast cancer and it's, a, it's in bad shape. And I don't remember all the details of the story, but here's the point of it. He said, I wish I could have got to them just a little bit earlier because she's uninsurable now. And she provides a good portion of the income for that family and if she passes, it's going to be a tremendous burden on the father and the two children, etc. And there's nothing he can do. He can't help them. And he said, if I had just called them just a little bit earlier or if, if one of the other people in the room had, would have called them just a little bit earlier. I have a friend of mine I know on Facebook that I worked with that I've been trying to reach and get a hold of 
and, and invite to church. And I just found out he, at 38 years old, had a heart attack and now has a rare blood disease. And he has a gene on top of it, they found out, they did gene study, and they found out that he has a gene that accelerates cell growth. So on top of having a rare blood disease, it's going to accelerate that, and it's probably going to kill him. He's 38 years old, has two beautiful children and a very nice wife and a home, etc. And I'm praying and desperately thinking, how can I get to Steve? How can I get to him? How can I get to him? Because I don't want to show up someday and find out that Steve's gone and say, gosh, I wish I would have called him one, just given him my testimony and just shared with him. You're the ark of the testimony. That's it. And if you've taken your faith, folks, please forgive me for, for saying this this way, but if you've taken your ark and you've put it on a cart because it's just easier. It's just easier to come to church when we want to. It's easier not to come to prayer. It's easier not to be here on Wednesday nights. If you've put your faith on a cart, I'm pleading with you today. Now is not the time. Because somebody that you know needs to hear your testimony. Somebody that you know is going to get diagnosed with breast cancer tomorrow. Somebody that you know is sitting there going, please God, don't let them make it easy. You understand what I'm saying? Does it, is it resonating? Take your faith. Take your ark off the cart. Make a list. Has anyone ever done that? Sat down and made a list of everybody that you know that you would love to see have a relationship with God that you know needs God in their lives? Just write a list. Because as I've said time and time and time again, we've got to start living intentionally. We've got to raise the bar in our walk with God. We've got to do this thing with excellence. And I'll tell you what, putting it on the cart and letting the oxen pull it, that's just lazy. Okay? I'm going to close with this. Second Corinthians chapter four. Starting at verse seven. I'll give you a minute to get there. If you're worried about aborting babies, pray for them. Pray for that situation. Pray for the laws. Vote. Do what you can. But that's not, your, that's not your ark. That's just putting your faith on a cart. Focus on where we can see new birth right here. Get to that mother who's contemplating abortion right now. That's where you can make a difference. Brother Matucci, that's where you and I can make a difference. We can reach that person before they ever get there. You know, a student who's getting ready to go to college, I have a ministry, by the way, that God has given me. I don't know what I'm going to do with it. I'm so, I'm so enraptured and encapsulated in what we're doing with this church. But God has given me a ministry to go to churches and focus on helping people who are about to send their kids off to college because, my God, they're waiting for them. They're waiting to take your precious daughters and sons and convert them and turn them into this secular, humanist, liberal, all that kind of stuff that they want to put in, but they want to take God right out of them. They want to turn them into what they want to turn them into. Get a hold of a student. If you're worried about Ocasio-Cortez, find out somebody that's at Boston College and say, go up there and 
and do something about it, but get a hold of a kid that's here now. 2 Corinthians 4 and 7 says this, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels. What that's saying is, is us. We're the, we're the earth of the clay jars. That's us. We're dirt. And we have the treasure in here, okay? That the excellency of the power of, may be of God and not of us. Not our cart, but the ark. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We're persecuted, but we're not forsaken. We're cast down, but we're not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. You see what that's saying? We're going to get hit with this stuff. You're going to be burdened with it. But we're not destroyed. We're not perplexed. We're not set off of our track. We're not distracted away from what we're supposed to do. And we're not just supposed to dote about the bad things, the death of Christ. Yeah, they were sad at the time. They were still lamenting the death of Christ. But what they're saying is you've got to focus on the life, the life that Christ offers them, the life that he gives them if you just share it with them in your testimony. Verse 11, for we which are alive are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. We have got to be the light, and here's what we're going to do. Here's what we're going to do, and I'm going to try to end this on a little bit more of a positive note because I seem to have cast a pall upon my congregation. But here's the deal. They say that you preach what you get, right? Or you get what you preach. I said that backwards. You get what you preach. And we're going to keep on doing it, aren't we, Brother Kylie? We're going to preach repentance because you know what? There is sin. And we're not going to put our religion on a cart and pretend that sin doesn't exist. That's what the world wants us to do. We're going to talk about sin. Are we going to shame people and hate people? Are we going to attack the abortionist? Are we going to attack people of alternative lifestyle? Absolutely not. We're going to love them. We're going to share our testimony. And we're going to preach sin, but we're going to preach repentance for it, you see? And it's going to happen. We're going to preach it and teach it, and it's going to happen. We're going to preach the Holy Ghost. You know why? Because they're going to get it. It's going to keep happening. They're going to come and feel it and feel the difference. We're going to preach miracles because you know what? Miracles are coming. We're going to preach healing because it's going to happen. People are going to be healed. We're going to preach holiness because we desperately need holiness in our lives. And we're going to preach salvation. And we're not going to be ashamed of it. And the world, and the world can mock and laugh and change and try to roll a cart into this foyer. I don't care. But we're going to preach salvation. And we're going to preach it like the tabernacle taught it to us, like God taught it to us. We're going to teach the message of the Ark of the Covenant, and we're going to stand strong on it. And people are going to be affected by the Spirit of God. He called us to take up his cross and follow him. He didn't call us to take up the cross and set it on a cart and follow it. I'm here to tell you today, I'm following. That cross represented sacrifice. When, they, when Jesus told those disciples, pick up that cross and follow me, he knew, and they knew that meant a death sentence. 
They understood that when people were put on a cross, it was to die. And he's calling us today to die for this thing. And I'm not talking about go out and sacrifice yourself. I'm talking about die to the things, the Asherah poles that are higher than God, the high places that we've set up in our lives because it was just easy, because it was easy to build a cart and send it on its way. We're being called right now to destroy that cart and live for God with that cross on our backs and not on a cart. And that's what he's saying to us today. In Jesus' name. Could I have our musicians this morning? I'm encouraging you today. We can stand this morning. I'm encouraging you today. This isn't a sentence, folks. This isn't something to put you down. This isn't anything to drag you. I don't want anybody walking out of here with your head hanging low or that you've been called out. That's not the point at all. Quite the opposite. What I wanted to say was that God had a plan, and he's doing something in this ark, and he's doing something in this ark. And you know what? There's just a little tweak of the dial we got to do. If we have a few things sitting on a cart, you just go ahead and pull them right off the cart and say, you know what, Brother Cordell? I will be there for prayer on Sunday morning. I want to be a part of that because I got got challenges. I have people that want to be saved. I have people that need to hear God. So I'm going to take that off my cart and I'll be here. You know what? I've really put Wednesday nights aside. I just, it's so hard. I'm tired. We're working. Everything is just really challenging right now in life. But you know what? I hear what you're saying and I think I can do it. Maybe not every Wednesday night, but you know what? I'm going to come. I'm going to come and hear what these great ministers and preachers have. That's what I'm talking to you about today. That you could walk out today with your head held high saying, you know what? There is something I can do just a little bit better. There is an excellence that I can reach to today. That's all I'm asking for. That's all I'm looking for. I popped up out of bed this morning. I told my wife I'm moving my clock back an hour. I did. 6.15 this morning. Boop. Out of bed, into the shower, out the door. And I came in this morning to talk to God and prepare for this message. Probably doesn't show, but I did prepare. We can do it. You can do it. And you'll feel better for it because you're going to affect somebody and your life is going to mean something. And these challenges that you're facing, these issues, some of the stuff that we're, we're, we're affecting, and I'm sorry I'm going on, but I, I need you to understand that the things that you're dealing with in your life, the struggles, the things that you say, why does this happen to me? I don't understand. Maybe, just maybe, it's because there's some things on your cart that shouldn't be there. And maybe, just maybe, if we took a few of those things off, maybe we don't have, the cart doesn't break down this week. Maybe something good happens. Maybe God begins to surround us and bless us with the things that we need to happen. But maybe, maybe, if we just get those things off our cart. That's what he's saying this morning. Jesus' name. Lord, we're so thankful, God, for your word. We appreciate you, Lord, for the guidance and direction that you're giving this church. God, today, I surrender to you today, Lord. Help me to take everything that belongs to you off of the cart that we've built, God, so that everything we do is for you, and it's pure and untouched and undefiled and undefined by my hands and my will. God, don't let me create faith and religion and church the way I want it. I don't want that, God. Lord, I just want exactly what you have defined. Thank you for listening to this Abundant Life Church podcast. We pray it has strengthened your relationship with God and will continue to be a light unto your pathway to heaven. If you have any questions or comments regarding this podcast, 
please telephone our ministerial team at 262-965-5177 or email us at info at abundantlifechurch.org.